श्री गुरु वैष्णव गुरु परंपरा की जय ग्रंथराज श्रीमद भागवत की जय और भक्तवृंद की जय और प्रेम वेलकम एवरीवन गुड मॉर्निंग सो आई मेंशन यस्टरडे ब्रीफली दैट वी वुड बी डिस्कसिंग फ्रॉम श्रीमद भागवतम श्रीमद भागवतम मींस द ब्यूटीफुल स्टोरी ऑफ द पर्सनालिटी ऑफ गॉडहेड and i mentioned also that in speaking about srimad bhagavatam it is more than appropriate to preface such a discussion with some a discussion about the glorification of sri chaitanya mahaprabhu and um for various reasons we find here in the commentary of magurmarsh on srimad bhagavatam that he wrote a lengthy introduction to his commentary 90% of which constitutes a a rather lengthy summary of the entire appearance and leela of chaitanya mahaprabhu so this serves to illustrate my point and furthermore why because as i said yesterday chaitanya mahaprabhu is the very um represents the very essence of Srimad Bhagavatam. He's born, in a sense, in the pages of Srimad Bhagavatam, and not on just any page, but in the, where the text reaches its climax, if you will, in the tenth canto, in the middle of the consummation of the relationship between Radha and Krishna that has such significance for all of us. There we find the, the genesis of the uh, of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu so he's born in the Bhagavatam and through him the child of the Bhagavatam in a sense we can learn about its uh, essence he comes from the womb of Srimad Bhagavatam and um, there of course what's taking place as I said Radha and Krishna are um, meeting and openly exchanging their love for one another the bhagavatam consists of course of many cantos 12 cantos and this section comes in the 10th canto and the 10th canto deals primarily with the what we call the ashray tatva the tatva that is the shelter giving tatva to many other nine other ashrita tatvas or tatvas that are sheltered under the shelter giving principle so the shelter giving principle is brahman the absolute and the creation and maintenance of the world and its destruction are sheltered under him the different avatars who descend within the world uh, sheltered under him and so forth so the 10th canto dealing with ashray tatva in itself is so to speak the acme of the book and it deals with ashray tatva by, by way of speaking about krishna lila the appearance of krishna in the world um and his whole life so to speak and in the context of that we find that krishna although he is the supreme enjoyer and the godhead as krishna means this a, a fellow asked me and I, i mentioned this before not me but a, but a student of mine a christian uh, kind of in a challenging way 
he put forward the idea that Christ was a better example of God because in Christ we find the principle of sacrifice. And in Krishna we find an enjoyer. Indeed, it appears to be an, he appears to be an illicit enjoyer, illicit and illicit. He's enjoying only. And so we find some purity in the sacrificing and the giving, but in taking, and we, we find the opposite. Then indeed we, uh, we find that taking is, um, or selfishness is unbecoming. It's universally accepted on, on some level by everyone. Even thieves will want to divide the loot honestly. So I was asked about that and I replied that that as much as there is any representation of the sacrificing that um, draws us to a larger than life experience, In other words, by giving we grow, by giving the self expands, by taking it, it it contracts. And um, we all sense that life is, as humans, there's a universal kind of intuition amongst humans that life is more than what meets the eye. Mm -hmm. Some people have philosophized, philosophized based on some empiric evidence to the, to the contrary, but they don't live their lives like that. They live their lives as if there's more and as if all things are possible. Uh, we perhaps can go into that at some, some, some length in the course of this discussion, but by and large, um, we have a sense, intuitive sense, whether it's correct or not, that life is more than what meets the eye. And we seek that more and we seek meaning and so forth. And in the, that more we experience, if uh, to whatever extent it is more, that's another question, but we do experience that life, our sense of self and our identity are, becomes larger when we give. When we give to the nation, we identify instead of provincially, we identify nationally. And then we speak of, uh, you know, one world, the world cup, and uh, every, we are identifying with the whole world, and so on. The more we identify with all nations, the less we identify with our particular nation alone and so forth. So there's a kind of a, a growth when we give, when we when we have children, we give birth, then there's a growing that takes place, identifying with the children as ourselves. It brings out something in ourselves that we didn't know was there, perhaps. So giving, anyway, affords us some some growth. And taking, on the other hand, makes us very small. So, rightfully, this person identified the giving spirit with uh, divinity. It's by giving we will we will grow and we will know in a comprehensive way. But I pointed out that if there is giving, there has to be an object to which the giving is offered. In other words, if the perfection on our side of life is to give wholly, and se- and that must be then selflessly to be holy, it must also be given 
in the in the most perfect place, whereby it can be fully taken advantage of. So we may give wholly, as much as possible, or selflessly from our side, but we may give to an object that's not capable of fully accepting and embracing and taking advantage of that giving. And taking advantage of it means that the center holds uh, their circumference uh, in place. So to give and to give fully, to give to the center, if you will, results in the entire circumference being nourished. So if we give as selflessly as we can, but to an imperfect object that's not capable of fully taking, then the greatest gain is not done, not accomplished. The full act of giving is not accomplished in, in an absolute sense because everyone's not nourished by it. If I'm to give fully, then I, if I give partially, my, my children will benefit or my nation may benefit or the world may benefit, but how to benefit everyone, all things, animate and inanimate at the same time, seems like a tall, um, difficult task, but that would constitute the full giving. And while we cannot go and give to each every individual, and uh, uh, if we could find the center by which, from which, all things uh, proceed, and by which all things are nourished, being parts of the whole, and so forth, then the whole can be nourished. Like the, all the leaves and branches of the tree can be benefited by watering the root. So. I explain in this way, Krishna represents the taking side. When we speak of Krishna, we speak about the enjoying side, the taking side. And ostensibly that may be a little off-putting when we are taught that taking makes one small, excuse me, and mean. Here we find the center as a taker and depicted as such. If we look carefully at the example of Krishna, as explained in the text of Srimad Bhagavatam, we find that as the taker, he is also the giver, as this, as much as the center, as I said, distributes all the energy it receives equally, like the center of the body, as the stomach distributes the food to nourish all the parts of the body in a way that no other part of the body, if it was to take the food unto itself, could possibly do. So. So, no, Krishna is not a bad idea of God. <laughs> He's the center idea. <laughs> He's the uh, enjoying side. And so in so many ways, then, he will be talked about to make this point and to be depicted and, uh, and showcased in such a way that we might make our giving more on, on target, so to speak, that it will be more full. And by it, that we it more 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 will be accomplished. So, of course, this Krishna is described in the in the Bhagavad, his life. He's the supreme enjoyer, and in so many ways that is explained. But he has a counter hole, so to speak, in the person of Sri Radha, who, upon in the context of the story, if you will, the beautiful story, as I said, Srimad. Bhagavatam of the Bhagavat, of the personality of Godhead, we find the personification of 
of taking and of giving, both. Krishna, the taking, Radha, the giving. But in the consummation of their love, the two become confused, almost. Who is the giver? Who is the taker? Krishna sees the measure of Radha's love for him, and he's astounded by that. And being the supreme enjoyer, he questions his own position, the supreme lover, Rasaraj, his own status as the supreme lover, because he sees a measure of love in her that he has uh, no experience of. So the desire is born in him then to taste that love. And in order to taste that love, he's wise enough to understand he has to put himself in a position similar to hers. That is the position of, of the devoted, the devotee, if you will. Radha is both deity for us and example, supreme example of devotion. So Krishna, attempting then to place himself in the position of Radha, this is the genesis of the uh, appearance of Sri Chaitanya. The overflow then of the height, the zenith of Srimad Bhagavatam into the world. And just primarily for understanding that very esoteric aspect of the Absolute. When the Absolute, when Brahman starts to question his own existence, the existential crisis of God is indeed a crisis for all of us. <laughs> we think that we will solve our existential crisis by understanding God, and in the Krishna conception of God, we find that God has an existential crisis. But we also find then a part, a meaningful part that we can play in the service of the Godhead, and we find also the, the kind of a unique opening, kind of an Achilles heel, if you will, to get the attention of Brahman, the Great. We are a tiny, tiny, tiny part. How will you get the attention of the whole? And all of the attention of the whole will be focused on us. That's a little difficult to accomplish. But we find that in the middle of Rasalila, we find this opportunity comes and it takes shape in the form of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, who is Krishna in search of himself as he is seen and understood by the pinnacle of devotion in the form of Sri Radha, accepting her mood. And in the context of that, pursuing that, it means the absolute just pursuing itself. The absolute is, is described here as, as a living and a full uh, substance that's nonetheless growing at the same time. To be full and to grow at the same time something that seems uh, perhaps doesn't quite fit between our ears, but it's an attractive idea nonetheless. And it, uh, it also seeks to tell us that it's the good news that there is more than reason uh, to life, which, uh, if it were not the case, we would be justified in our boredom. But we're not, <laughs> is the message. Boredom is a great sin. You're not paying attention to uh, what life is really saying. This is what it's saying. This is what the Bhagavatam tells us. This is what life is about. To be full and grow at the same time. <clears throat> so that growth through the 
absolute, the unlimited exploring, its unlimited nature is causing different descents and different expressions of itself. And Sri Chaitanya is this, this represents his deepest, most introspective moments of the Absolute, as far as that is to say, what has been recorded in uh, religious canons in, 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 in our world that we know of, at least theoretically, if the Bhagavatam could be acknowledged by all the different religious sects and the Bhagavat followers were to acknowledge and recognize the charm and the beauty and, and the validity of different religious texts, that comparatively we have to say at least, well, this theoretically talks about the most an extraordinary moment in the life of the Absolute. Um, there's a, the Christian moment when the, the father wants to... What does he want to do? He wants to s- send his son... <laughs> Sacrifices. So once I was distributing this book, Sermon Bhagavatam, and I met a fellow and I offered it to him and he said, I don't need your book. I said, okay, well, may I ask why? And he said, because in our book, and as it turned out he was a Christian, he said, we know about the social life of God. And I, I really liked that very much. I thought... That's a very good standard by which to to measure the extent to which your text tells us something about the center, about the absolute, about Brahman, about our source. After all, we have a social life, and that's what we're made up of, in a sense. What's the things that are important to us, our friends, our family, and so on and so forth. And... Um, there's not a lot of information about the family of God in his social life in too many religious texts, but I realized after talking with him a bit that his point is that in Christianity we know about the Son of God and that God's... That's his, he was referring to that as his social life. And I say he sent his son and his, his son made a sacrifice and so on and so forth. So... I picked up on it, then I let him explain it, and I, he confirmed my, my suspicions. And then I said, I think you'll really like this book. <laughs> it talks about his father and his mother and his friends and his lovers and so on and so forth. has uh, considerable information about his, his social life. So that's, of course, our subjective um, take on, on on the absolute. We don't blame anyone for thinking their tradition is the best. They should. or If they don't think it's the best, maybe they should get involved in the one that they do, is, they do think is the best. Um, but at the same time, we have a fairly uh, well-reasoned and objective argument to make as to what Srimad Bhagavatam offers us as a revealed text in terms of information about the Absolute. It's a wealth, a great wealth. Even it will be admitted, um, perhaps more readily, in India, um, where there are many, many um, interpretations of Revelation, many different religious expressions within the context of Hinduism, that Srimad Bhagavatam holds a special place. I mentioned that um, it, is the, it, is the, it is the mature explanation of the 
of the Upanishads, at least our particular sect sees this and reasons well about that. The text itself says, Shruti Saramekam, that it is the essence of the Shruti. In fact, it is said within the text to have, have been first spoken in four verses by Krishna to Brahma. And what makes one, in the context of the Hindu religious canon, one text a Shruti, one text a Smriti, the former sometimes being thought to have more um, importance. Shruti means that which is heard, the implication is it's directly manifest from, from God. And Shmriti means that which, having taken the essence of what has been heard or said by God and thinking about that, remembering that, meditating on that, and drawing out and explaining in some greater detail the meaning. So either way you look at it, in Srimad Bhagavatam we have Sruti, directly spoken by the Lord. People say, oh well, then it's more important than the other. And we can also make the argument it's Smriti as a Purana. And that's more important because as Jiva Goswami has argued, Purana means, Purana means to complete. So the actual the Puranas seek to complete the message of, this, of, the, of the Shruti, remembering it, thinking about, meditating upon it, and explaining it in, in greater detail. So it is the Shruti and it is the Smriti, the essence of both um, combined. And um, again, in the 10th canto, we find the essence, and there we find Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. So, for good reason, we will preface the discussion of Bhagavatam with some discussion of the significance of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. Now, Gurudev has given a lengthy, really, synopsis of his whole life, his appearance on earth and his extraordinary deeds and teachings and so forth in his introduction to his translation and commentary of the Bhagavat Purana. Simon Bhagavatam Amalam Puranam and in our sect Amalam Pramanam as well. It is the spotless Purana dealing only with the most transcendental topics and it is the most complete and spotless form of um, evidence or revealed knowledge is the most, mean to say, the most complete uh, explanation of itself that Brahman has offered the world, as much as revelation is an outreach from the absolute, from the infinite to the finite, whereby the finite can come to know about the infinite. Finite cannot know the infinite mathematically, but if the infinite, out of its infinite capacity, chooses to do the impossible and reveal itself comprehensively to the finite, then the finite can know. So there's some place for revelation. One thing is the extent to which Bhagavatam represents revelation, and the other important point to raise is the importance of revelation in the first place. We tend to think that um, that life has purpose and meaning. I realize that people will debate with us on that. But again, as I briefly mentioned earlier, they also lead their lives as if it does, even if they conclude that it has no purpose. Those who are sure about that have thought it out for quite some time in pursuit of meaning.
and they've come up with that kind of empty, maybe it's a kind of a Zen meaning, I don't know. That there's no meaning. <laughs> we also agree with them on one hand because we say there's no meaning, that life is not ruled by any reason, but by the love of the Absolute for its, and the celebration of its own fullness and joy and so forth. It transcends reason. But love is a kind of meaning also. And so the Rishis, they approached life with love. They approached life, as I said earlier, with the giving propensity rather than the taking propensity. They saw themselves as humans and as humans to be more complex and evolved than less complex and evolved forms of life. They understood, these Rishis, that in human life they represented as human beings nature, waking up to the fact that it had a soul and that it had life. They saw it like this human life facilitated consciousness to the extent that it afforded consciousness the opportunity to understand itself, to think about itself, to acknowledge itself in the sense of I, that I exist, takes place. They didn't see it as a, as a kind of a misfiring of the of neurons or, or something like that. Their own idea was this, subjective as it may be, consciousness is the center of life. They felt consciousness the center of my life. I'm a macro, microcosm of the macrocosm, so consciousness is the center of the whole of life. Life has consciousness. Life is consciousness. Now again, we may not be able to verify objectively by a third person the, their metaphysical claims or their subjective experience that consciousness was central to their life, but that's the experience of all of us, isn't it? That I am is subjective reality for all of us that makes our life worth living. Um, and so if we think that that subjective experience that I am, which cannot be empirically proved that I exist, is false, a misfiring of the neurons, as some people, as some people like to think, again, it does not stop them from living their life as if they exist. So in a practical sense, then we are all accepting this subjective experience and life would not go on if we did not give it as much credence as we do. And that's why if you give too much credence to the idea that I don't really exist, then, then, then your life may, may be stunted in a practical sense. You follow me? Hmm? And of course, the collective intuitive is more important than isolated individual intuitive insight that might be different from another. If we're driving down the street and everyone in the car says, Swami, I think we should turn left here. I'll have it, it'll have a different result than if someone, if the boss says, you should turn left here. I'll say, I don't know if he's right or not about that. So the collective intuitive uh, sense of human society is, again, that there's more to life than what meets the eye, and that I exist. And I'm bigger than what my senses and, and, and reasoning uh, limit me to. We think of it in terms of expanding our senses, and some materially speaking, or expanding our knowledge 
and our mental prowess and so forth. But this is only to pursue the more that we are in a way that we won't find all that we are. So the rishis sought, rather than trying to be more and pursue that intuitive sense, validate that intuitive sense, by taking, exploiting, by developing a language for describing the world like math that lends itself to them controlling the world, conquering it, to being the gods of the world and changing the nature of nature, becoming intoxicated by such ideas and questioning by old moral laws and and so forth, breaking the laws. And this is a kind of an isn't it an attempt to to be the god? The rishis acknowledged that they were gods of a sort as humans in relation to other species of life. But they had a kind idea about what the controller should be. So there, they found themselves uh, as, uh, um, for example, they acknowledged consciousness in all forms of life. And they lived a kinder life, if you will. And their whole approach to understanding the world was a participatory approach rather than a controlling approach, participating in the something that's already happening as a part. And so they spoke about their experience in participatory language rather than a descriptive language like math and science. They spoke in poetry. And by speaking about the nature of being, as per their experience in in poetry, they invite us to participate in that. So Srimad Bhagavatam is about 18,000 verses of, of poetry. And um, it begins here with the first verse, a verse that has been uh, cited in the most um, comprehensive treatise on the life and teachings of Sri Chaitanya, Sri Chaitanya Charit Amrita, the great work of Sri Kavi Krishnadas Goswami, one of the immediate followers of the first generation of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's students. He called his book Chaitanya Charit Amrita. So the you can see how it is it is the essence of Srimad Bhagavatam just from its name. Chaitanya means consciousness. Charit Amritam. The the immortal character of consciousness. It's an exploration into the nature of consciousness, the consciousness, if you will, of consciousness. That's what it's about. And this is what Srimad Bhagavatam is about. If we are exploring consciousness, well, we start with ourself. We are conscious. We exist. We sense this. Uh, I am a... I am. I am... Due to the frustration, perhaps, from religious traditions that got watered down and didn't afford people direct experience of what that I is, people have, over centuries, reasoned that it can't be proved, it can't even be experienced. If they do experience, it's a, it's a hallucination. And there's no ghost in the machine, as someone wrote some, you know, a few decades back. Um, and invoking the law of thermodynamics and 
and so forth to kind of prove there's no such thing as a soul floating around, if you will, but that even in the world of science today, this is there's a new science, so a new physics, and from that perspective, there's there's this old idea has been given new new life for those who need it to be thought about or talked about objectively and based on um, experience, really, of, of, of knowing through experimentation the nature of, of the world, which is possible to arrive at, obviously, to an extent. So, anyway, the fact that we are, let's we'll take a theistic perspective, and we are units of consciousness, and in that sense we are... Consciousness is the center of our life. It's the, it's the experiencing aspect of ourself. <laughs> what is more important, that which is experienced about ourself or in connection with ourself or the fact that we experience it. The experiencer uh, it takes a position above the experienced. So consciousness is the center. And in Bhagavatam, we, we get this, this very nice nuanced explanation, because that could be a little intoxicating. You are the center. There are people writing about that now, even in the modern world, based on scientific perspective, that that, uh, consciousness is the center. Kind of a new, another kind of Copernican revolution from Earth to centered, to solar-centered. We're getting a little more light there to consciousness, that which lights up the world, that animates our thinking capacity, our physical capacity, our intellectual capacity, our self. This is the center. Too much emphasis on this over might intoxicate us a bit. So Bhagavad very much nuances this. Consciousness is the center. You are the center. And then and that you are consciousness, but you are not the whole of consciousness. Therefore, the light that you are is subject to the darkness that you find yourself in. Lost to yourself. But that self in its full sense can be fully found by exploring the depths of consciousness. The Chaitanya Charit Amrita. The, the Amrit means Amrit. Amrit means death. Amrit, deathless. And it means nectar, as if the gods had a nectar that you could drink and live, become immortal. fellow recently wrote a book about how, and what did he say? It was a hundred years, he reasoned, and he gave scientific explanations. We will be able to uh, experience immortality in this uh, no longer mortal frame, if you will, a bit of a far-fetched idea from our perspective. And questionable whether we would want such. The descriptions of immortality, on the other hand, from the spiritual perspective, are really not as far away as 100 years and more compelling. They're immediately within your grasp. But to convince you of the importance of that and the, and, and the possibility of that, that potential may take some time. But when you're convinced and apply yourself fully and it is immediately within your grasp to know yourself. So to explore the nature, the amrit, the deathless nature of consciousness, 
the deathless Amrit Chaitanya Charitam. Chaitan Charit means character. So the immortal character means the immortal, like nature of consciousness, the nature of consciousness in immortality, in all of its steps. Now, who can say that this is not a relevant topic in the times in which we live? Consciousness is so important. I read an a interview on the CNN with uh, Richard Dawkins, a famous atheist. Maybe you may be familiar with his work. And he was said that we're just closing the gap on this thing once and for all. Although he himself admits himself to be six on a scale of seven in terms of his atheistic convictions. He's a six only. <laughs> he has some reservation. That's smart. That's intelligent. Uh, but he says that we're closing the gap. Soon everyone will be a seven. And through the gathering of empiric evidence and so forth. And so he was asked, what's the last, the last frontier? He said, explaining consciousness, this is the last frontier. And what he meant was to explain that it's nothing more than, it's not a thing unto itself, as we think. It's just uh, the, the composite of the body, the firing and the brain. And some, they have many, many, many conjectures in the scientific community about the nature of consciousness, none of which satisfies any ones who has come up with a theory, any of his contemporaries in the field, the science of mind, for example. I was listening to an interview with another philosopher, in this case, in, this, in the field of science of mind. He's at Berkeley. Uh, John Searle is his name. He's quite famous. And he was, he said in the interview that I think that he said two things that struck me. He said, if we would just do away with all of this religious propaganda that we've been browbeaten with for centuries, this old world thinking we could just like start fresh without that, then I think it would be, without that burden, it would be easier for us to think about how consciousness is material and, and so forth. And I had to chuckle because I thought, Consciousness unto itself comes up with religious ideas. Consciousness unto itself thinks itself to be bigger than the mind, bigger than the body, that there's more. It naturally goes in this direction. That's why as humans come to consciousness, religion comes out. It's not artificial burden that we've been uh, troubled by. It's much more troublesome to think that although you feel and experience subjectively that you exist, to be told that actually you don't, there's nobody there, the lights are on, but no, there's nobody home. <laughs> this, is, this is very artificial. This is a huge mental kind of burden. It goes against our intuitive sense and the basis on which we get up in the morning and do things for all intents and purposes. It's, it's, the, it's, it's the practical the center of our life, as I said, that we think that we exist. And again, we can't prove that. So how valuable and how much distortion is there in, in a world where insistence upon third-person objective verification of something is required before we proceed 
We can't live our life like that. Do you follow me? It's not possible. No one leads their life like that. Subjective experience has more more validity than we would like to give it sometimes. We've become a little intoxicated by the objective truths of uh, life, so to speak. So anyway, he's, he that struck me. And then the other thing he said was that I think and I firmly believe that, that given the rate at which science is going now, and I thought for a moment, it's going pretty fast. Now it's expanding exponentially. The Ten years of science now is like the first hundred years of science. You'll accomplish more in ten years than in the first hundred years of science, maybe the first two hundred years of science, so modern science. So it's going at a pretty fast rate. He said, I think in about, in about a thousand years of today's science, and I'm thinking a thousand years, that's a long time, <laughs> and it's expanding exponentially, and uh, he says that, that we'll be able to explain consciousness. And to me that meant we don't know anything about consciousness, really. And he would be then an infant in his field, even a thousand years from now, if we took a thousand years from now to arrive at the answers that he's trying to come up with. He's admitting, I'm an infant in the field of consciousness here in the West, and I'm a luminary. I'm, the, I'm one of the brightest shining lights to tell us about the nature of consciousness. But actually, by my own admission, whether I realize it or not, what I've just said, I'm an infinite infant. I'm, I'm a shadow trying to explain the light of what I am, of what we are. And in the East, then, without taking any pride in that, I don't mean to say that he's a prideful man, but there are certain disciplines that do tend to make us a little more proud than than um, than others. The spiritual discipline is, can do that too, I suppose, but it's supposed to theoretically make us humble. And Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's doctrine is the extreme in this regard. He said, Trinadapi Sunichena. Who wants to understand consciousness, the immortal character of consciousness, its nature, its essence, the consciousness of consciousness, will have to begin here. They will have to become more humble than a blade of grass, proceed in this way. The Rishis proceeded with this kind of idea in mind. And they tried to participate in, in the world in such a way that, that the universe would speak to them. As I've said before, it is said... If you love someone, they will tell you all their secrets. So rather than try to conquer the world, to love the world, which means to move in the world without taking from the world, that's very artful. That is yoga. They were yogans, Vedantins. They tried to understand the outer world by looking within. It's a very different idea. They found there is more within they found, they experienced again as we do. Consciousness is the center. So if I want to understand the circumference, I'll go to the center and look from there. Then I will be able to see in all directions comprehensively. What is the nature of the world? Now we don't find from them issuing forth descriptions of how to navigate to Mars uh, or the moon or uh, many other of the wonderful things that science has given us. How can we say that they went to the center then and can describe the whole circumference? 
because they described it in a different way, in a qualitative way. After all, what as humans we're after meaning and quality. In the words, what they described was the world, the circumference, in terms of what it's really all about. It's all about love. Love makes the world go round. This is a very human idea, no doubt. <laughs> Uh, but um, it's true. And humans, it said in another religion, are the imprint of God or something. Anyway, they describe the world not in such detail of what's inside of every atom with this kind of this kind of investigation. They investigated the quality of what what quality life. What is the quality of life when properly lived or when connected with the center? What is the quality of the life of the center and how to be, by being connected with that, the quality of our life will be the same? This is what they explain in Sermon Bhagavatam. We shouldn't expect to find in the text an explanation of everything in a literal sense, but an explanation of everything in a meaningful sense. After all, we all who wants to know about everything in every detail? None of us do, right? About everything. So so many things say, well that I'm not interested in. Even the even the person who's like library addicted, you know. I had a godbrother of mine, two godbrothers, they were they were distributing books at universities to to professors, and they had one of them went, they went in different places, and then they came back, and one asked the other his experience of the day, hey, how was your day? And, and the other fellow said, a lot of maya. means a lot of illusion I confronted, a lot of distraction. He meant my mind was like, what he meant was my mind was kind of like taken out rather than myself going within. I was, I was taken to the circumference to an extent. And he, he said, the other fellow said, yeah, those, you know, the university girls are pretty attractive. He said, no, I was at the library. <laughs> so, <laughs> so. <laughs> but even such intellectuals, they don't want to know everything. It becomes a burden. <laughs> it becomes troublesome. So, and to really know everything, to know the absolute, to know the center, we are told that to know him is to love him, or to love him, I should say, is to know him. By loving, you will know. Again, if you love someone, they will tell you all their secrets. So, they took it that the universe is alive. It has intelligence. The world has intelligence. And that by approaching it, with that in mind, humbly, with a giving tendency and so forth, as a lover would approach, that they had a better, better capacity for knowing that which is worth knowing. And this is what they were concerned with, the immortal character and nature of consciousness. Not 
it's interesting because it just neither there's the, the book Chaitanya Charitamrita is just, just called Consciousness, which would be a compelling title, Consciousness. A lot of people might write that, write, read that book, Consciousness. What is it? What it's about? I mean, it's like I say, it's a very relevant topic, but they've nuanced it as if to say, well, there's a lot there. <laughs> The immortal character, the character in our immortality of consciousness. In other words, they're saying consciousness has an immortal life. It has a stunted life in relation to matter when it's identified with such. Freed from that, it's not just a peaceful, quiet center, but like, like the sun, it's full of nuclear explosions all of the time. And they call that Leela. And Chaitanya Charitamrita is, as I said, the essence of the Leela of Srimad Bhagavatam, the biggest nuclear explosion in the world of consciousness. That uh, esoteric uh, existential crisis of joy personified himself, overflowing into the world as Krishna Chaitanya. His name? in immortality, Sri Krishna Chaitanya. So he was, the book, The Immortal Character and Nature of Consciousness, about the person who was consciousness, Chaitanya, Krishna, Krishna Consciousness. From this uh, title, my Guru Maharaj used to call his his sect Krishna Conscious, or, or the interest of his sect. We are interested in Krishna consciousness, he meant we are interested in Chaitanya. By saying we're interested in Chaitanya, some will think, well, who's that, some Bengali fellow some 500 years ago? He said, no, that means we're interested in Bhagavatam. That has then greater universality in the, in, the, in the Hindu world than Chaitanya when first thought of, oh, Bhagavatam, oh, that's something. Different sects will partake in as well. But, uh, but about the Bhagavatam in such a way that we can see Chaitanya has represented that uh, to an extent that, that no other has. So this is a very uh, important book. This is why we, uh, as I briefly said yesterday, we, we preface any discussion of it with some discussion of Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, who, in the book, the most comprehensive book about him, by Sri Krishna's Kaviraj Goswami, the Chaitanya Charitamrita, the book is about 10% or 15% Srimad Bhagavatam. It's a narrative of the life of Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu in the context of which his precepts are explained. And every point that is raised is then a verse from the Bhagavat is cited as a way of, what do you say, confirming because the Bhagavad says, the life of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, we learn this lesson. And this lesson is found here, as in the Bhagavatam also. So it's constantly showing how Chaitanya Mahaprabhu is the Bhagavatam, how his teachings personify the essence of Srimad Bhagavatam, how, the, how he exemplifies the life, what, what is the consciousness, as I say, of, of consciousness, that is Radha's perspective on Krishna, the Shakti's perspective on Shaktiman, the energy's perspective on, on its energetic source, that the energetic source wants to see through 
the eyes have to better understand itself. And hmm. so, in, in that book, and the first verse that we'll begin speaking about is cited there. Also, it's cited in three different places to make three different points. And so, we'll begin our discussion of the first verse by discussing those those points, and then go over some depth of its uh, its significance. And maybe that'll be the next talk. Is I've talked enough for this morning. What time is it now? Ten past eleven. So, are there any questions? Yes. About the concept of concept of giving, uh, as I think about the, the, the about giving, I understand that to give. Why well, think about it? Well, well I right. you should just do that. Yeah. If, if <laughs> you I, don't have to think about that. Yeah. But if I give something to somebody like Shanko, and I think about that, um, but then I know, like, when we talk about that, the center of the giving is Krishna. So sometimes it brings in my, it comes more concrete if I do a service for a child than if I think about Krishna. Giving. Mm-hmm. So, what about this idea that the guru is a very concrete representation of Krishna, most in a concrete form, so to speak, kind of like chiseled in such a way, just tailor-made for you. That's why he or she is your guru. So, the guru is supposed to stand out like that in a way to represent Krishna his devotees also. But because he or she should be of some stature of maturity, then that much more. So, there is the center. That's practical, right? And and, if, and the reason that you are part of any guru's sect or so forth because you feel it has value, importance, and that, that, that um, it serves to facilitate you in terms of being or becoming a giver and a lover and so forth and so it's very uh, and, and others as well so it's hard maybe in the beginning to see Krishna at the center because Krishna is rather esoteric and and you don't always see him Krishna comes in the form of the deity and you can give to the deity that's a more concrete and so that's the kind of thing that you're talking about so the guru is even more concrete than the deity because you wouldn't even know the deity was Krishna if you didn't hear from your guru who was explaining and why and so forth and how and what's the method of approaching Krishna in the form of the deity and so forth. So so I think there's some um, value to your point that Speaking about giving and Krishna's the center, it all sounds good, but where is that center? It's kind of abstract. And uh, how do I give to Krishna if I, if I just if I give to my family? That's pretty practical. I can, you know, I can, I can understand them, and I can think, well, maybe they're an extension of Krishna. And in my life, it come to you know, give me an opportunity to sacrifice and, and so forth, and and so on. And there's something to be said for that. But as we, where, wherever we give is good, and we should grow from that giving. And part of that growing should be that our ability to understand 
what is a more complete center for giving and how to approach that should come into focus over time. But um, anyway, as much as I acknowledge that Krishna's, we speak about Krishna as the center, it's a bit abstract. I don't think that your guru is too abstract and that what he may be doing is too hard to relate to that uh, you know you can give there. Then you'll know it's pretty close to the center there. Uh, but I don't mind if you give to Shambhu Paul. He's <laughs> <laughs> Does that help? Mm-hmm. Another question. Sometimes when giving, we, uh, I guess I should say, I, <coughs> I feel there's a problem that, that uh, sometimes I, I become kind of like resentful that I've been too unselfish for a long time. Now I should, should be my turn. So what's a good, good way to overcome this kind of problem? What did you call it, resentful? Yeah, or like, like... Uh, Oh, you, you, I've given, I, I should take a break now. Yeah. <laughs> 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 That's a hard question to answer, aren't they? <laughs> but, uh, art of giving, giving, giving is an art. And we can, I think we can give and give kind of with an intellectual <laughs> understanding that I should be giving and dutifully and so forth. And on that level, we may experience that. Um, giving has to come to the point that, you see, the real point is that the more I'm actually giving, the more I'll, I'll feel that I'm giving and it feels good. So we may become be giving kind of in an intellectual way, although we actually give part of ourself, we give it in a kind of a calculated way, kind of dutiful, and think I should be giving, therefore I'll give. It says I should give, I've heard I should give. I, I agree with the principle that I should give. And there's all this, you know, head work going on in connection with something that's actually heart activity. And it inhibits the actual act of giving, how you'll get beyond that <laughs> so that you're actually engaging in heart affair and, and getting, feeling full from that so that you're tasting the giving and you, you, that's become your meal. That's because you realize this is what I'm living on. Life is to, to give is to live and so forth. I guess you have to stop living in your head, <laughs> but uh, you know, that's not so easy to do. It takes some time and... Uh, so I, I guess my answer is to give some time and to think about that and uh, and try to find, um, maybe try to think about when you are giving these these kind of, these ideas and uh, yeah, try to make each act of giving really an, an act of giving. I mean, I don't maybe know how to explain myself, but this, I want you to think about it, but stop thinking about it at, this, at the same time. I'll think about that. If I think of anything else, I will bring it up in the course of our discussion here. Yes, do you have a question? The how-to questions are a little difficult. You know, it's kind of like, that's what we're doing. It takes time. I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, about this uh, concept of giving, because... Um, Picking up on that, 
um, from the Christian perspective, of course, it, it is tied up with the concept of grace. Um, so I would like to ask you about, uh, uh, because in the Christian uh, understanding, salvation is a gift of God. Mm -hmm. God is given something for us. And um, so there are different kinds of religion that uh, some emphasize more on, on the, the activity of God as, as a giver, and then some religions uh, emphasize more our own uh, effort to reach God. Mm -hmm. And, and this, this is why the, the, the God's uh, activity is in, in Christianity quite uh, emphasized, and the key concept, concept is uh, God's grace. Yeah. So I would like to ask you about uh, how, how the Srimad Bhagavatam, what, what does it teach about God's grace mm -hmm. in relation to uh, spiritual practice? Mm -hmm. Good question. Actually, it's, uh, it's often misunderstood from what I've read, which is limited, but from what I've read amongst Christian thinkers, that Christianity differs from Hinduism in the way in which you're speaking about. Hinduism being effort-based and Christianity being grace-based. And I guess you could say that if someone's given to you, then you have developed a sangskar for giving yourself a tendency for that. In other words, if you've been nourished as a young child and your parents have given well to you, then you tend to be able to give well to others. So that's an interesting concept, and I agree with that in, in, in a sense. But as I say, it's a misunderstanding, I think, amongst many Christians that uh, Hinduism is more effort-based than grace-based. What we teach in Vaishnavism is that Bhakti is a gift. It's grace. It's not something that can be earned. It's not your right. Now, you mentioned salvation. And, of course, there's a difference, a nuanced idea about salvation in Vaishnavism from what I understand in relation to Christianity. Salvation is a word we don't like to use. We think it to be rather shallow and selfish self-serving in a spiritual sense. And we are interested not only in foregoing material selfishness, but spiritual selfishness, however noble it may be, in that it involves foregoing any material selfishness. So the example in the Bhagavat, for example, of the gopis is, is an example of someone devoid of spiritual selfishness as well as material selfishness. And then there are examples in the Bhagavatam of devotees like Prahlad, who are examples of foregoing material selfishness. In other words, the gopis lose any sense of their own self. They entirely make Krishna's pleasure their own pleasure. Krishna's heart becomes their heart. If Krishna is pleased by their receiving bliss, then they accept the bliss, but otherwise not. So they're depicted, if you look carefully, as extremely selfless. So... So the differentiation or the nuance on the idea of salvation is the difference between salvation unto itself, which means becoming free from the perils 
of the world in the Vaishnava context, birth and death, or in the Christian context, uh, not having to go to hell. So you got saved from hell. Salvation is a rather, as positive as it may sound, it has a negative connotation. It's about getting away from something. So the very word is repulsive to us whose, whose spiritual pursuit is much about going after someone more so than it is getting away from someone, which is only a byproduct. There are hells and the world is a hellish place in many respects, uh, but Chaitanya Mahaprabhu prayed, Mama Janmani Janmanishwara, I'm not concerned to get out of birth and death and all the implications of material life. It's like saying, I don't mind if I go to hell. The gopis, there's a story, you're following me, right? As the gopis, there's a story that Krishna told Narada that I have a headache. And Narada said, well, how can we cure it, Lord? And Krishna thought for a minute and he said, well, give me the dust from the feet of my devotees and put it on my head and that will cure my headache. Now, Narada is a great devotee, otherwise how is he having this conversation with Krishna? He didn't think for a minute to take the dust from his feet. He didn't go, here you go. He thought, ooh, that's not a good idea. I'll go for talk to some devotees, see if I find anybody. I'm not going to put my feet or the dust from it, which is even lower, so to speak, on Krishna's head. So he went everywhere, and no one would give the dust from their feet on Krishna's head. That's considered to be an offense, you know, if you if you do such. So it, he went back to Krishna and, and, he, and he thought, okay, all your devotees have passed the test that you have, you know, put before me. Krishna, I talked to all of your devotees and none of them would give the dust from their feet on your head. They all passed the test, he was thinking like that. And Krishna said, oh, okay, I still got a headache. Anyway, did you ask the gopis? He said, oh, I didn't think about them. You mean uh, those milkmaidens in Vrindavan? I'll go there. You see, they are not overtly great devotees. They may sound like they're overtly great devotees because we're overtly speaking about them and, and plumbing the depths of all the philosophical implications of what the Leela means and its significance and so forth. But without that, they wouldn't be thought of as the greatest devotees. They're not like this folded hands before Krishna and so forth. And in fact, their relationship with Krishna is kind of hard to figure out. So anyway, he went there. He told the gopis, Krishna has a headache. They said, what can we do? He said, Krishna has said that if, if, you, if you give the dust from your feet, that will cure his headache. They said, take it. He said, don't you know what will happen if you put the dust of your feet on Krishna's head by the kind of religious, from a religious perspective? They said, yes, we have to go to hell for that. But if it will relieve Krishna's headache, we have no problem. This is the spirit. So, so the idea of just getting away from hell, which salvation saved from, you know, from what? From something bad, is not really the preoccupation in Vaishnavism. The preoccupation is loving Krishna, even if it means going to hell to do so. There's another nice statement in Bhagavatam. What is that one? Of, in Sixth Canto. Anyway, same principle is, is uh, stated by Lord Shiva, Nara Apavarga Nara Keshu, Whether they're in heaven or hell, liberated or non-liberated, doesn't make any difference for them. They just want to serve Krishna. So, 
the preoccupation is not salvation, but, but love of God, to love Krishna. That has a positive connotation. Now, that opportunity to love Krishna as opposed to salvation is wholly dependent upon His grace. And those forms of Hinduism that don't emphasize bhakti, they will be more effort-based in their explanation. We call the bhakti path avarohapanta. It's a descending path. In other words, if bhakti decides to give herself to you, which is the grace of Krishna personified, if Krishna's great, then you can take the bhakti. Otherwise, not. In other words, if you were to take yourself as a unit of consciousness and brush aside all of the material implications and attachments, you wouldn't find yourself in, in Vrindavan serving Krishna. You would find your chitkana, a particle of consciousness that had a little bit of ananda, more or less constitutes the, the relief that, that, of knowing that you're eternal rather than the fear that we live with now, thinking that we may not, we have to struggle to exist. So there's kind of a, here you are, the soul covered in material life, you're surrounded by asat, achit, nirananda, no bliss, your, your material knowledge is, constitutes ignorance of yourself, and your, things, your existence is temporary. You clear that off, you have a sat, chit, and ananda existence, eternal, cognizant, and somewhat blissful existence. But that doesn't mean you have bhakti. But even that, we teach in Vaishnavism, to arrive at that, if that's your goal, let's say you just want a salvation, mukti, moksha, liberation. You have to make a lot of effort, and you have to have a little grace. And Bhagavatam teaches this. Without grace, that is not possible. What does Krishna say in Gita? Same thing, he says getting older now. I can't remember all these verses. but He says that um, He says my maya, mama maya is duratya, insurmountable. But by some grace of mind it becomes possible to cross over. And Bhagavatam, many such statements. So some grace is required. We call that Sattviki bhakti, a form of bhakti, and the sattva, constituted of sattva guna, and uh, and shuddha bhakti, pure bhakti, then that can afford one prem, and this is a gift. So bhakti is not your right to fight for; it's a grace from God. And if we get this grace, and of course you could say, well, is it given to some people, not other people? And well, she goes where she wants. She enters the heart of a, of a devotee, an intermediate devotee who discriminates where to go and where not to go. And through, through that agency, she distributes herself. Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, of course, is a huge installment of grace for the world as we see it. Krishna in the form of a devotee <coughs> and distributing the opportunity for bhakti everywhere. And different avatars are always coming to the world as, as this idea of Bhagavatam, making this available. So, the outreach from the absolute, from the infinite to the finite, is required in Vaishnavism for the finite to know and meet, meet its maker. So it's very grace-oriented, wouldn't you say? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
And I found a lot of Christian thinkers aren't aware of that uh, aspect. And, and I think that one of the differences is that, and I might be wrong, so you, you can surely correct me, is that we don't find, at least nowadays, in Christianity or any of the Abrahamic religions, much of an emphasis on, really, or any kind of a explanation of a sadhana. Like Thomas Merton, he went to the Buddhists. When they thought of contemplative spiritual life, he, he interfaced with the, the Christian the Catholic theologian, with Buddhists and Hindus, and they imported some tech meditation techniques and the idea of controlling the mind and the, and the senses and so forth. I mean, whereas the Hinduism is full of this is yoga, the, the practice, the sadhana, the, that's effort. Of course, it's a grace that you're able to perform it in the first place. And we look at it like this. Two things are required, grace and effort. And ultimately, grace, because the effort can't be made without some grace of the, the means being made available to you. But we should live our life as spiritual lives as if our success was effort-based while knowing fully that it was only by grace. In other words, we caution, I suppose in a Protestant way or something like that, that uh, works uh, are important. <laughs> uh, don't live your life as if you're going to win the lottery. That you won't we'll put food on the table. You could win the lottery, that's true, and just get a big dose of grace and that would be it, but but you should work as if the effort is, is, is the main thing, while knowing really it's only by grace. It's by both, effort and grace. But if we were to, to say which is more important, we would decide on, fall on the side of grace. And of course, uh, Eastern thought and religion is, 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 is about knowing and experiencing in the here and the now, and it's, uh, I don't know, and there used to be a lot of experiential Christian saints and so forth, we're told. I don't know what they did, but... Anyway, that help? Yes, thank you. Okay.